Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Stephen, and on this week's New Statesman interview, I'm joined by John Elledge to talk about his new book, The Compendium of Not Quite Everything. So I'm joined by Citymetric founder, NS columnist, map botherer, John Elledge. Hello. This is very exciting. I've not been in this room for ages. You've made it all fancy. Yeah, we've, uh, as you see, it, it looks, I thought, I think it, it's a bit like a Pokemon evolution, right? And the last time you were here, this really looked like a room. And now it kind of looks a little bit like a studio. And it's I it's think, a room that's cosplaying as a studio these days. Yeah, it's, it's, it's getting yeah, there. It's yeah, it's, it's but and I didn't have to assemble any microphones when I walked in. That's a change from the old days. Oh yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. We're we're you know we're lean, we're mean. Um, I think after eighteen months inside, none of us are lean, but we're definitely mean, and we're green, or as I think we're now meant to call it, ESG. That's a very niche joke for anyone who works in advertising or marketing there. Anyway, moving swiftly on. The reason why you're here today is is you've written a book called The Compendium of Everything. The Compendium of Not Quite Everything. It's uh, it's a very important distinction. I don't want to give people a misleading impression of quite how much of of the world is covered in this this slim volume. But yeah, it's kind of like, um, well, actually, before I describe it, do you have a bookshelf in your toilet? I do not, but I know exactly what you mean. I have a, I have a couple of books that live in the bathroom. Yeah, it is very much a book you can imagine living in a bathroom. I mean, like I, th- I think my when I was uh, touting for for people to say nice things about it, which is a, a painful and embarrassing, but unfortunately necessary part of the book writing process. Our former colleague uh, Helen Lewis kindly said it was like the ideal toilet book or something, which is like I'm I, I'd be offended, but you're right. That's exactly what we're going for here. Well, so one of the reasons why I failed to send a nice thing about it, also because it's terrible, but I, is because I, I was on holiday and there was a bath that fit me, which was a very exciting and rare experience. And I thought, oh, uh, and so I, and it's, it's a very good book to read in the bath and kind of go through and go, oh, I didn't know that. And I mean, the thing it really reminds me of actually is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, not the novel itself, but the actual guide. We should probably describe the book in a moment because yeah. we're just kind of talking about it and no one has any idea. But I am genuinely delighted you say that because that was one of the one of the things I was going for. So like the, the it, it wasn't a book that I, I pitched. A publisher was kind of looking for, looking for a, a, a writer for hire and I got the gig. 
And they wanted a book of kind of, you know, facts and lists and, you know, interesting stuff about the world for that kind of old, you know, if, if, it, if, it, if it works, it's going to be the book everyone buys their dad in a panic just before Christmas is that kind of book. And when I was trying to work out how I would turn this idea into an actual an actual book, the two things I kind of had in mind were firstly this this uh, science book I had as a kid published by Osborne, which had like, you know, cross sections of what the planets look like inside and like, you know, the planets all lined up behind each other and like maps of the human body. You know, the kind of book, but the one that kind of I still remember kind of the sense of wonder about about the universe and and science and nature that it kind of created in me. So that was something I wanted to go for. And the other thing was I wanted the tone of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the actual book, as you say. So that is, so it it is. I'm over the moon that you picked up on that because it is basically just like here here's a bunch of like mini essays about about things I find interesting about the world, written in a snarky tone. Basically, is is what's going on here. So there's about a hundred different mini essays in there, ranging from everything from from uh, stories about the creation myths to to like how the universe actually came to be in about seven hundred words, through kind of like the biggest film franchises of all time and the most populated land masses and all those kind of things, and sort of landing on a series of things that might might kill us all. Yeah. I think what I particularly liked about it is the sort of the slightly more random is the wrong way of putting it, but the ones which are where where the the list is itself kind of the the joy is almost in the title. So you know, list of things invented by women, which includes central heating, gas powered central heating in, invented by an African American woman, which I just thought was a really cool fact. That's something that really leapt out to me. That one. It's not just so like there is a sort of domestic theme to the things invented by women. Shockingly, given you know what, ways in which their their lives have historically been difficult. But several of the things in that list are African-American women, aren't they? And then you never hear about these guys. Yeah, well, this, this is the thing I thought was really fun about that list, right? Isn't On the one hand, you have kind of, you know, dishwasher invented by a society hostess because she was upset that her servants kept breaking the dishes when they washed them, which is, you know, kind of admirable from intellectual, sort of for an intellectual pursuit perspective, but perhaps not, not you know, the kind of particularly sympathetic but, protagonist. But the class politics of that yeah. aren't great. But on the other hand, yeah, you have loads of African-American women who presumably given the time and context must have kind of like done it part yeah kind of like well what did you do this evening well i invented gas-powered central heating what did you do it was i mean in the in the writing of it so i hope in the reading of it as well a lot of the fun things are the kind of diversions and the and the, the, the footnotes and another another thing i quite liked is when when you take something that sounds like it's going to be like a relatively simple list like how many countries are there in the world those questions that you think there's going to be an easy answer to, but when you actually start drilling down into definitions, it's it's surprisingly surprisingly hard to pin down exactly what what counts as a country and how you define that, and you kind of end up with like multiple different possible answers, which are potentially all, all correct. The thing I found really interesting, and yeah, everyone should go and read it. The weird thing is, is that so I, I do have a special bookshelf of books, and don't leave the toilet because I think it's unhygienic for them to you know for them to move around the house once once they're there. But it's just nice to, you know, have them to, you know, like if you just, yeah, just I'm, I'm against, you know, sitting and tweet, you know, sitting and flicking Twitter. I think that's unhygienic. But the thing I'm kind of fascinated about all of them, particularly this, which I think is a, a brilliant example of, of kind of sort of a wide ranging book. And you can either enjoy sort of reading cover to cover or sort of flicking through and finding a sort of fun, fun fact is uh, this one. I'm just particularly kind of fascinated by how you went about structuring it, because Unlike a lot of these books, it does also actually read well cover to cover, even though I feel like it really shouldn't do, right? The beginning's sort of obvious, right? You start with creation. The end makes sense. You end with apocalypse. But it somehow works as a process throughout. And I just, yeah, just talk me through the kind of, do you have one of those kind of weird sort of 
conspiracy board things where you know you like sit there kind of doing a flowchart on with chalk or something i have a massive spreadsheet which includes all the all the articles i never finished as well because i mean the, na- the nature of a book like this is kind of like potentially anything could go in there so it's a compromise between you know what can i actually pull together and what do i really want to be in there within the time provided i mean in terms of the structuring so it's 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 nine chapters in the end i think and it starts off with like the universe and then goes down to the planet Earth and there's a bit about measurement and a bit about history and you know, a bit about the natural world. There is a sort of miscellaneous chapter in there for all the stuff I couldn't be bothered to kind of come up with nine other examples of to turn them into a full chapter in and of themselves. So it's just like this is the dumping ground. But to be honest, the, the trick to structuring it was not anything more complicated than you've already spotted that I kind of start with creation and talk about death at the end. There's a beginning and an end and in between it's just kind of done thematically. I would love there to be a much cleverer answer to that, but I'm not sure there is one. Oh, that's a shame. It's very disappointing. Um, I'm a very disappointing person. Oh, they are. But it's not a very disappointing book, and it's available soon, so, you know. So, actually, the other thing I... Now, I guess the one thing I found disappointing is I suppose I always saw our relationship in the NS as akin to between that of Arthur Dent. You're obviously Arthur Dent, quintessentially English, kind of cranky, and Ford Prefect, myself. A hoopy fruit, knows where his towel is, inevitably would be played by Moss Def in the movie... This is weird because I think I'm very much at the exact midpoint between Arthur and Ford. Because I've definitely got Arthur's social awkwardness and a habit of wandering around in dressing gowns. But at the same time, I do I do love a party and I'm not someone you would ever want to be responsible for saving the universe. Yeah, that's a fair point. But, um, but the thing I found sort of just as occasionally you know, when I'm using my iPhone, I'll just be hit by this wave of sadness that Douglas Adams never got to see one. It's actually the first book where I kind of almost wished that I could have it in a format where it would spit out at random intervals and sort of choose a thing and go into it and do sort of its its digression. Now, is there going to be some kind of auditory format, some kind of book cast some newfangled format, perhaps. This is a wonderful segue for me to tell you about the podcast of Not Quite Everything, which is coming out to accompany the book, which is, as it stands, a series of just six episodes with quite random interviewees. But, you know, people I've been very excited to talk to. So I, I, I had a very embarrassing incident earlier this week where I found myself in Hendon Park, standing on a wall on one leg, trying to interview the first astrophysicist ever to take a picture of a black hole because of a scheduling conflict at my at my end and a series of cock-ups. But so I spoke to him. He's called Heino Falk. I've spoken to Caroline Criado-Perez about the gender data gap. She'll obviously be familiar to NS, NS listeners. I spoke to the historian Alex von Tunzelman, who's got a book out about the statue wars and the history of statues and their role in imperialism. And it's it's a series of episodes like that just kind of... Because the book is so random, I thought there was no other way of doing it other than just interviewing some interesting people and kind of topping and tailing it with their favourite facts about their subject or their favourite facts about the world. And I kind of tell them a few things from my book. The other thing worth mentioning is if you if you do just want the audio version of this book, there is going to be a 13 hour recording of my reading it. So that is that is another possibility. It unfortunately won't make the pleasing beeping noises of the book from the Hitchhiker's Guide. And I fear that my voice lacks the, the gravitas of a, of a Peter Jones. But nonetheless, that is an option. You can you can just hear me read it to you all night, all night. Just go to sleep with me talking to you and wake up with me talking to you, too. Isn't that just what you've always dreamed of? Please, Stephen, interrupt me because otherwise yeah, I'm just going to keep going. I was going. just really wondering where this was going. All I, I, I could think know. was, I think I'll stick to Max Richter's sleep record. It's great. Like, he plays this kind of very sort of... Well, actually, it's one of those things where I'm always fascinated about Max Richter's sleep record because you listen to it while you go to sleep and then you wake up and it's still playing. Is what if, like, four hours in, there's just silence? How would I know? 
If I were him, I would have just been like, you're probably asleep right now. Or what if it's just like a voice very quietly telling you to kill someone or to like send him your bank details? Yeah, that is possible too, I guess. Yeah. But I mean, I'll never, I'll never find out. But yeah, Max Richter's sleep is actually, I mean, also people, people should get your thing too. They, they should. should. They, they get should. the audiobook of it or the book or, you know, whatever, whatever format they, um, whatever format they you're, you're most interested in. It's, it's interesting that actually you talk about how it ends with Apocalypse. Weirdly, I actually found the, the bit which, the saddest bit for me of the book is actually right at the beginning because I've, is the kind of stuff about which kind of interesting about how big space is. Weirdly, you kind of like oh, and I just as I think some people believe they will never actually die, I realise I do strongly believe I will at, at some point get to go to the moon. I know that this is not true. I know it's not going to happen. Except I say that, and I kind of think like oh yeah, but but I will get to go to the moon. I know what you mean. Like there is this sort of section just trying to communicate quite how ludicrously big space is. Followed by, because I'm a nerd, there is a section that's sort of exploring how different science fiction franchises have kind of dealt with the fact that the speed of light is, so far as we can tell, the speed limit of the universe. I find it deeply depressing that the universe is so big and you know so vast and there's so many wonders in it and it is not built on a human scale. Like, like there is there is pretty much no chance, according to the laws of physics as we understand them, that we will ever be able to get out of this, this solar system, which is one of something like two what's it 200 billion stars in one of hundreds of billions of galaxies it's star trek is not is not going to happen that's not real that feels that feels just sad to me well for many other less depressing facts <laughs> do check out the compendium of everything which is out on the 17th of september uh, it's out on thursday the 16th of september from wildfire books and it's brilliant please go buy it If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Don't forget, you can now listen to our special Germany Elects podcast series, which explores the campaign, the runners and riders, and the big issues ahead of Germany's election on September 26th. Available now on the World Review podcast feed and at newstatesman.com slash Germany. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
as you say in the book, right, there, there are lots of sort of wonderful references to other things people should read, including the wonderfully titled How I Killed Pluto and Why It Had It Coming, which is a real book, I, I hasten to tell listeners, you can actually buy a book with that title. But yeah, you also talk, as you said, said in part one about various sort of sci-fi concepts of space travel and, you know, the ones which are accurate, the ones which aren't accurate, the ones which desperately want to pretend that they're accurate and the ones which kind of go like, just roll with it, man. What's your favourite science fiction way round the fact that light speed may be the limit of the speed limit of the universe okay i'm gonna go for the hipster answer on this which is the series of babylon 5 which was you know one of the it's an important bit of tv history because it's one of the first series that was kind of planned as a five-year story arc like a novel which is kind of not that unusual these days in the sort of age of streaming but in the in the early 90s it's very different from from most series which are designed for syndication so you could see them in absolutely any order babylon 5 is written as a story um but so so it's it's was an important text to me for that reason but also the way they deal with kind of getting between you know one star system and another they have to the ships have to literally open up wormholes and it's kind of these blue swirly things that, which feel jump gates which looks pretty cool and as I as I have always understood it, is kind of like closer to the possibilities of real silent science than something like the Star Trek warp drive. Although the astrophysicist I was talking about briefly in part one told me that's that's not real either. There's no evidence whatsoever that wormholes are, are going to be a thing. So, so so that's sad. Very sad. I think my favourite sci-fi bead of light thing is the forever uh, the book The Forever War, which is really about Vietnam. Where <laughs> not about the Labour Party, but <laughs> But where the, the the way they deal with it taking so with it taking so long and the fact that if it could work, you would probably actually end up travelling in time is that the home front, you know, they arrive back millions of years in the future every time. Yeah, they arrive back in very different societies in that way than obviously. And again, it's it's an analogy for like veterans feeling alienated from the society that they're they're defending. But it's done really skillfully, right down to the fact that when they arrive back at the end, they arrive back basically, and they're just like, oh yeah, that war we had squillions of centuries ago before we learned how to speak with the other race. Yeah, we still get veterans coming back from that. Welcome to society. But it's but it's very good. It's 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 done in a it's not doesn't sort of beat you over the head with its bleakness in a way that I think sometimes some sci-fi of that type does. Although actually this maybe just speaks to my own sort of slight pessimism, but one of the reasons why I think I preferred a handmaid's tale to the testaments is that the handmaid's tale, although it ends with that note of optimism and at some point the Gilead regime falls, and you know, I don't care what Margaret Atwood says about it not being sci-fi, it is sci-fi. People need to get over the fact it's it's sci-fi. Whereas the Testaments is is grim in lots of places, but there's a kind of optimism to it and a br- and a briefness that it puts on the Gilead regime that somehow means that while it's a brilliant book, it to me isn't quite as brilliant as A Handmaid's Tale, which I think is to me the supreme dystopia. Which, seeing as your book ends with apocalypses, yeah, what's your favourite dystopia? What dystopia should people go out and buy after? After they've after they've watched all of Babylon Five, what dystopia should they go out and buy, read, or watch? I really enjoyed the first season of uh, Amazon's The Man in the High Castle, based on the Philip K. Dick novel, which was an astounding piece of like it's one of the most painful bits of drama I've ever seen. It's just like you're on the edge of your seat the whole time. It's for those who are not, I'm, I'm sure everyone's familiar, but just in case, it's, it's set in a sort of parallel late 20th century uh, US in which the Allies lost the war. So, so the the west coast of the US is under Japanese control. The east coast is is Nazified, and in between, there's kind of this sort of no go area with, with like moderate freedoms. 
and, and it's, 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 it's a great novel and that was an amazing TV series. That did come out in, I think, early 2016. And given events later in 2016, I decided that I didn't need more dystopias in my life at that point. So I've never gone back for season two onwards. But that, that, was a, that was a hell of a piece of television. So we've talked a lot about the influence of The Hitchhiker's Guide on it. So I was going to say, what to you is your favourite of the, the six books? I refuse to recognise the... Wait, no, there are only five. There are only five, yeah. What's your favourite of the five books? I refuse to recognise the canonicity of the continuation novel. I I think the best novel is... I can't remember what any of them are bloody called. That's really upsetting. Am I... This is my first time in the New Statesman office in ages, and I couldn't remember what reception looked like, and now I can't remember the name of Hitchhiker's Guide novel. Is this this me being diagnosed live with early-onset dementia on the New Statesman podcast? Possibly. I do think there's also something... Is it So Long and Thanks for All the Fish? Is that the fourth one? Yeah, it's the fourth one, yeah. Yeah, which is basically a love story between Arthur and and, and Fenchurch. I think that's the best as a novel. Yeah, and it really should, I think, actually. In my heart, I think think of it as the last one. Mostly Harmless is, is good, and it has some nice sort of conceits in it. Well, he was very... De- I mean, it ends on an incredibly depressing note. Yeah. Because Douglas Adams was incredibly depressed in 1992 and he wrote it. And like, ideally, I think there would have been another one that kind of undid the depressing ending. But, but unfortunately, he died before he got around to it because he, he was, he was not, not a great one for deadlines. But actually something I really... So, so like, after, after Adams died, when, when the radio producer Dirk Mag has adapted the, the last three books as radio serials... Firstly, I think the the adaptation of So Long and Thanks for All the Fish they did is absolutely beautiful. Like the soundscaping in that to communicate the experience of of like of, of like meeting the love of your life. It's like it's just a wonderful piece of work. So even if you haven't read the book, go listen to that. It's called the Quandary Phase. I think. Yeah, it's the Quandary Phase. But secondly, at the end of those, he puts an epilogue on, which kind of undid that depressing ending to the whole saga which is still like i don't think i've ever listened all the way through to that and not got a lump in my throat at, at just everything turning out okay and van church appearing again because you know in, if you're listening to the radio episodes back to back this character's been gone for all of about two hours but if you kind of followed it as a saga and read mostly harmless when it came out this character had been gone for something like 15 years and so it's a really powerful moment to kind of like hear she's back and everything's fine and i've never listened to that without tearing up a bit so yeah, on the subject of tearing up, sort of final thing to get back to the book, which yeah, everyone should go out read for yeah, get for yourself, get for your own toilet bookshelf. Assemble your own, like it's great, seriously. Even just a pile of them. What else is on what is on your toilet bookshelf? So your book, Tom Gald's cartoons. I have Oh, those are great. Yeah. My far side box set. Okay, well that's that's very privileged company. I mean, I will I will I will take that. Yeah, you've you've always gotta you've gotta have a good selection of things and you know, because I mean I realize this is all such powerful only child energy to just be like, because look Sometimes you just want to spend some time in there. And, and if other people have to knock on the door and be like, could you please just get the hell out of the toilet so I can do my business in there? Well, that's their problem. Everyone should get a toilet bookshelf. But I think that I'm going to end with my favourite fact from the book, which is actually the, the list of animals to have been sent into space. Oh, there's, yeah, the only footnote in the book that, that literally made me tear up in there. Which is the, 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 the Russian scientist talking about the Laika, the first dog in space gave a press conference like 25 years later saying like he felt very bad about it because they didn't learn enough to justify the death of the dog 
And I was like, uh, that's just the saddest thing I've ever heard in my life. And you're someone who's not, you know, an animal lover. You you, you hate animals, don't you? I know, don't it's kind hate... of part of your brand that you loathe dogs. So. I, look, I, loathe is a very strong word. I just, as, as, long as, as long as they're not near me and I'm not sort of required to kind of do that, like, oh, isn't he a good boy? Yeah, it just, fine. It, however people get their kicks. And if making baby sounds at a dog is how people get their kicks, then that's fine. But... I don't get it myself. I'm obviously against cruelty to animals, but I'm also kind of against proximity to them. But there is something, even for a sort of animal cynic such as myself, something very powerful about this list of animals, most of whom died, almost all of which are just like, and did we learn anything from? You know, like, like kind of once just like, well, we've successfully sent a tortoise up there safely. Um, shall we see if we can send a... I do think it's a shame there's not more... There is, as far as I can tell, no film footage of the of the fish they sent into space. Just because I kind of... I just want to see what that looks like. Like, I mean, like, they, there was a lid on the tank. Don't mean, like, the water's not floating away. They're okay. And they were, they were fine. I think they actually came back to Earth okay. But I'm just very, very curious to know how that actually works in practice. Well, this, is, this, this, this podcast has been very much in the spirit of my book in that I kind of feel we've gone all around the houses. We've talked about all sorts of things with, with no structure whatsoever. And it's been a delight, which is exactly what, what I've been going for. So, so th- thank you very much. Thanks for coming. And come back to when you do, you know, the sequel, what the compedian of more, not quite everything. You've been listening to the New Statesman Podcast with me, Stephen Bush. If you've enjoyed this week's interview, please do go out and buy the book and do leave a favourable review on the NS Podcast page. Our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons, and it's recorded and produced by Adrian Bradley. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.